welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 15th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. This time, I'm taking you all over the place. We will start in Spain, move on to the lush rainforests of Costa Rica, and swing by tropical Cocos Island in the Pacific Ocean. After this episode, you will be ready for holiday. My guest today is Dr. Gianmarco Bettoni. Gianmarco is a wildlife veterinarian for the Northern Tiger Cat Movement Ecology Project, as well as a trainee in wildlife epidemiology and a master's student in One Health and Zoonosis at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Welcome to the show, Gianmarco. Dr. Wendel, it's a privilege to be a part of the podcast. I'm really honored. I'm a recent new member. You're currently a master's student in Spain, but you have participated in a large variety of projects across different taxa, landscapes and even climate zones, which is very impressive. But let's start at your career beginnings, your vet school experience in Costa Rica. Your home country is such an amazing tropical biodiversity hotspot, which I haven't been to personally, but I'm dying to go. Was this biodiversity reflected in your coursework at vet school? So this is a really nice question, Dr. Bendel. I think we have an amazing wildlife. The Costa Rica is positioned in a really tropical and a really biodiversity rich area and really dense as well in terms of, of wildlife and vegetation. And I think there's lots of, of really good professionals working on aspects such as ecology, genetics, and, and biology per se in wildlife. And they're doing an awesome job. I've got the chance to collaborate with them on, on a few projects. But I think wildlife conservation health and conservation medicine aspect could be a little bit more precise and a little bit more technical. We can improve a lot. Thankfully, I've seen a lot of, of projects and NGOs that have been asking for veterinarians to get involved, as I think they've seen the need of approaching the health aspect in their projects, because we are nowadays, we're having lots of crises, and I think diseases are definitely on the top of those crises and affecting wildlife. So yeah, I think we can improve, and I think it's starting to do it. Nice. That sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds like as you said, there's a bit of work to do still, but it seems like there's definitely progress and that's always awesome to hear. Absolutely, yeah. Let's chat about your current project, your master's project. And that's very different from the rainforests of Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah. So you study the epidemiology of pneumonia of Pyrenean chamois. Can you tell us first, not everyone might know, what is a chamois? Yeah. So myself at the first time didn't knew as well. I got, so I started the master's and I was looking for a project for a master's project, obviously related to wildlife health and epidemiology, which is my area of focus. And I got the amazing opportunity to connect with Dr. Oscar Cabezon and Dr. Javier Fernandez from the Wild, Wild, Wildlife Conservation Medicine Research Group in the uh, Autonomous University of Barcelona. And they offered me this, this project, which has been ongoing for a couple of years now as part of a health surveillance in Catalonia, in Spain. The project is really well organized. And uh, yeah, so the, the chamois, it's, it's a really small ruminant. It's, it's an ungulate and, and a ruminant in the Caprit and the Caprit family. So it's related to domestic goats. And so it has 
a lot of species and subspecies, and I'm working with a subspecies that is on the eastern Pyrenees of Spain, and it also in, also in France. And I'm working with an even more selected group of, anim, of animals, a small subpopulation living in a village, in a game reserve. And uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to understand, and I think this is one of the following questions, I'm trying to understand what's happening on, on terms of, of health. I have heard people calling the animals instead of chamois, calling them mountain goats. But I want to point out here, I think chamois does them much more justice, right? Because they're much absolutely. more than just mountain goats. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They're really, actually, I think they're, they're in the same family, so family, as I said, but uh, they are their own set of, of, of species and, and genera. <laughs> and uh, tell me, so the chamois are extremely good climbers. Like it's incredible <laughs> what they can do. How do your climbing skills compare to that of chamois? Well, nice question. The first time I went to the Pyrenees, I wasn't used to this type of ecosystems. I was just humble and impressed uh, when climbing my first slope. I couldn't believe these animals can do that in less than a few seconds, not even a minute. And I just was catching my breath. And even when I improved climbing skills, I won't even get to half of what a chamois can climb in a few seconds. <laughs> That's very fair. Yeah, We're human just, after all, right? We are just human and they are on another level on term survival and wildlife fitness. You're working on the epidemiology of pneumonia in these animals. Tell me, what is the significance of that? Is that like a threat to their conservation status? How does pneumonia in chamois work? So, yeah, nice question. Basically, pneumonia, for any of the guests that will hear the podcast, it's a pathological process that affects the lower respiratory tract, basically the lungs and all the, the bronchial tree. And it can be of various causes. It can be from infectious to toxicological to unknown causes. And we are investigating how the disease dynamics and how the pneumonia is behaving. We are actually trying to tackle if this is actually a clinically relevant disease, if it's affecting them on their ecological fitness, and if it's causing like massive mortality. But by reports and by surveillance, it's apparently not affecting them on those terms. But we do see at the necropsy level, we do see animals with really clear lesions and really spread lesions all over the lung tissue. So it's a really interesting question we're trying to figure out. And we're also trying to figure out the etiology because as of now, this of, in, in this particular subpopulation of Nian Chamois, we don't know what the cause of this pneumonia is, although most probably this pneumonia are caused by a family of bacteria under the Pasteurylacea group. Yeah, it's interesting in a way, isn't it? They always say mountain air is like the most healthy and that cures your lungs. But for the chamois, that's not always the case. Exactly. My master is called One Health and Zoonosis, and we're trying to link the One Health aspect. So these chamois in this particular area in the region, game reserve, they do share meadows and pastures with domestic sheep. So we think and we hypothesize that they might be an interchange between the domestic ships and the wild chamois. And, and this obviously will be a cause of anthropogenic origin. So it's really important to approach this one health aspect in this disease dynamics, because we could be talking about microbiome transfer from domestic ships to wild, to wild animals. 
and they usually don't share microbiomes. And some of these bacteria in the domestic animals' microbiomes can be harmful, potentially harmful for wildlife. Let's chat about the other project you are still involved with as a wildlife veterinarian, which is taking place in Costa Rica, so back in the rainforests. The project you're working for is the Northern Tiger Cat Movement Ecology Project. At first, I just saw the word tiger and was like, oh, what, tigers? And then I saw (laughs) Costa Rica, hang on, there are no tigers. But anyway, (laughs) it's the Northern Tiger Cat, which I looked it up. It's a very pretty cat, just a bit smaller Mm. than a tiger. Absolutely. Do you want to tell us a bit about what the Northern Tiger Cat looks like? So, yeah, obviously the name is a little bit confusing at first. You couldn't think about tigers and the Surican rainforest. So, yeah, this is a really small cat, really elusive. It's really hard to see in the jungle. It actually doesn't live in the jungle per se. You usually think of Costa Rica as a jungle, but we have some ecosystems called cloud mountain forest, which are on the highlands of Costa Rica. And these animals are living in these highlands. And it's a really not expected cold weather. And these cats, they're really small. They can at most weigh at four kilograms at most. And they're really elusive. They usually stay on the top of the trees in the canopy area of the cloud forest. And they could consider an arboreal wildcat species. And they have their bone anatomy adaptive to live on the trees. How do you get into that project? What does your work entail? So yeah, the head biologist, which is Amaya Autor-Cortez, she was contacted to have a team of veterinarians in order to capture the animal. As the idea was to put some collars and take samples. And I'm part of a team of veterinarians that are on call for the project. So when she goes to the field, she calls uh, available veterinarians to go. And I'm part of the list of those veterinarians. And we usually do intensive fieldwork expeditions, trying to look for the individuals with camera traps, we prepared the traps and obviously there's already some animals that have been captured and already colored. So we do biotelemetry in the jungle and it's really, really tough. We actually have some colleagues, some biologists that are specialized on climbing trees and they usually go up to the canopy and do telemetry up from there just to try and get a signal and see if they can try to get a hint of where the animal is because it's really the cloud forest is really dense. And it's a really tough terrain to work in. So yeah, this animal has put us through a lot of pain in our field assignments. (laughs) I can imagine that for sure. But it also sounds like great fun. Then there's another project you have been involved in. And I have to say, from the description, it sounds like my personal favorite. So you have been part of a project that looked at antimicrobial resistance in the microbial communities on sharks in the Pacific Ocean of Cocos Island. Which shark species did you work with and what was the study about? Yeah, so that was a nice one, really different from, you know, terrestrial species. We got to work with with Galapagos sharks, silky sharks, silver tip sharks and black tip sharks. These are really pelagic animals. That means that they have really high migratory behavior. They usually travel long distances between different islands and coasts. And we got this idea based on other projects in white sharks where they found antimicrobial resistance of the coast of both South Africa and East Coast of the United States. So I thought based on those projects, we could maybe find some interesting results on the Cocos Island sharks 
especially Cocos Island being a really isolated place in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It will take you 36 hours from the coast of Costa Rica, depending on weather conditions, to get there. So it's a tough one. And the question was, if we found some hints of resistance, we have more questions. How, Firstly, how did it get there? Uh, and if it gets there, what potential routes could be allowing this to happen so we did find some interesting results and they're really preliminary, but they can give us a hint and ask ourselves, is Cocos Island still a pristine area or is just actually being affected by the anthropogenic pressure that is happening all over the world? Right. So you actually did find signs of antimicrobial resistance in those sharks. Where do you think that's coming from? Since you said the Cocos Islands are so far from civilization, that is quite scary that you found that. Absolutely. We don't know if they get infections because of these bacteria, but the microbiomes of these sharks presented resistance against some antimicrobials of clinical importance, human medicine. And we have like various theories, but theories is that these sharks migrate to give birth in the coasts of Costa Rica, Panama, and Nicaragua, and other Central American countries. They usually go to the mangroves and the river mouths, which are usually polluted overall with toxics, with antimicrobial residuals, and with plastic pollution as well. And these rivers also wash off lots of agricultural lands with a heavy load of livestock that at the same time receive quantities of antimicrobials. So the theory is that these sharks get this microbiome when they give birth through microbial shredding, which is changing of microbiomes in depending on where the individual is. And when they go back all the way to this Cocos Island to feed and to the cleaning stations, they are carrying this resistant microbiome. So that's one theory. And we also find a really interesting and scary thing as well, which was fecal bacteria like E. coli or enterococcus. And that popped out another question that is how these fecal bacteria are getting to source such an isolated place. And it will be same as antimicrobial resistance. These bacteria get into the shark skin in this river mouths and mangroves and they travel all the way to the Cocos Island and not only Cocos but Galapagos, Malpelo in Colombia and Coiba in Panama. So we need to progress a little bit further into this project and we want to introduce a little bit more of technical aspects such as genetics and connectivity to see if this is actually of human cause. Yeah, that is a super important project, but definitely also a bit scary, those findings you made. There are even more projects, which we don't even have time for, that you have been involved. But tell me, do you have a favorite among those you have been involved in? Yes, absolutely. I've been lucky enough to to have been involved in some projects and mainly some of them haven't been like research per se, but more like on-site conservation, like rhino dehorning. And I will say rhino dehorning is one of my favorites, but in the research aspects from a veterinary school graduation thesis, I did a project on coral diseases, which is a really understudied group. So it really excited me to have been introducing this area into Costa Rica. And there's some veterinarians focusing on coral diseases over the world. And I got advice from them and we got to 
pioneer into this project in Costa Rica, and it was really exciting to be on the field. Some people will say, why corals? They're just standing there with no emotions whatsoever, but they're really inspiring. They're really, you know, forgotten animals. And I think that just the fact of working with these underrepresented groups is really exciting. They are not that charismatic as, for example, a rhino or an elephant, or not, but they are as important as those big animals are. Being part of the group of people that get them out there and try to get the funds and the support for them, it's really nice and exciting. Tell me, what type of projects do you see yourself working in the future? After finish my master's, I will go on to Brazil and I'm going to be working on the Brazilian Atlantic rainforest in disease ecology And while I felt I was really lucky to get this opportunity, it's a collaboration between the EcoHealth Alliance from the United States and other institutions. And I'm really happy and privileged to be moving on this project for a year. And hopefully in the future, I will get involved in projects that approach the conservation and health aspect of wildlife, whatever is needed, be it in my home country or other countries. I'm really looking forward to what's coming. And I'm learning from really nice professionals and really qualified veterinarians, biologists, ecologists, sociologists that are on the field doing a great job. So I'm really open and really looking forward for opportunities in the future in general with wildlife. And as I said, I really like working with underrepresented groups, squirrels, for example, let's say amphibians or other small group of animals that are a little bit lacking funding or attention. And they are really important to the preservation of the planet in general, which is the end goal of all the people involved in conservation and should be the general goal of society overall. <laughs> That is great. And tell me, do you have a preference? You have worked in the clinical wildlife medicine field, but also in research. Do you like one field more than the other or is it the combination of both that you want to do in the future? Awesome question. So Uh, I consider myself more into the field aspect, into the research aspect on site. I did a few clinical work back in Costa Rica in order to get some handling and training into sampling and procedures, emergency procedures. But I'm more focused definitely onto the field research aspect for multidisciplinary teams. Thanks so much for being my guest on the show. I really enjoyed hearing about all your work, your adventures, and I had a really good time talking to you. Likewise, Dr. Rendell, uh, hope, hopefully we will reach some colleagues and the general public and motivate young veterinarians and other represented communities to get their work outside and spread the world. That sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.